Hello and welcome to the Helios blog. My name is Helios here for another reaction video. Today, Jordan Peterson talks about the dangers of casual relationships. Let's get into it. The reason she's alone is because she's difficult. Women are not accepting the bare minimum. Women fuck men they respect. All the women who say things like, I'm strong, independent, I don't need no man, like, y'all impress me. Women just gaslight each other and say what they want to hear. Well, everyone who isn't one of those two things is a predator. That's a just blood. That's just a bloody disaster. How do and we, so, how do we know that this isn't okay? So, this is my experience being being female. And classic solipsism. I think we've had discussions about this before because I've got um, I've got a lot of masculine personality traits that just mm -hmm. skew towards. And then there are other women like me, right? Yeah, lots. But, you, but we're talking about the average female here. So I've had a hard time understanding some... We're actually talking about the feminine temperament. You the know? Fe okay, feminine yeah, temperament. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Even more than the average female. It's more like... It's like the, the, feminine. the typical feminine temperament. Okay, okay, okay. I can Because men can, can have, this, men can have yeah. this, this, this tilt to their thinking as well. It's less common because the combination of personality traits that would produce that ethos, which is likely high neuroticism and high agreeableness is less common in men. Okay. So do you but think it's, it's not absent? Do you think it's just those really high agreeableness and high neuroticism? Um, I think low intelligence helps when, and, yeah. and I, I think this low for a reason, as no, well, or no, just... no, specifically my graduate student, Christine Brophy and I studied political correctness and political correctness, I think is an outgrowth in part of this hyper, um, feminine ethos and so what jordan is talking about is he's talking about the womanist bent to society the matriarchy that's what he's talking about here i think that well we first of all we tried to find out if there was a set of beliefs that cohered as politically correct or woke yeah because that's the first question is this just something that you know right-wing conservatives are hypothesizing it's like well you can test that statistically you can see if you have one belief if you're more likely to have another and then you can see which sets of beliefs are likely to associate with one another we found clear evidence for the existence of what was obviously identifiable as a politically correct set of beliefs and what we did was take a very broad set of beliefs and ask people about that and then use statistics to group those beliefs we found a group that I believe anyone in our current culture would regard as politically correct. Then we looked at what predicted it. Well, being female predicted it over and above agreeableness. And Indeed, because the PC culture is an extension of the matriarchy, of course. So, of course, being female predicted. The only guys that really believe this wokeism narrative stuff are the guys that are trying to get laid. They, try, they believe that by associating with women, that by associating with the feminine, they can get laid, which is obviously stupid um, because women are only attracted to men. Well, not always, but mostly. Okay, shitting time. Hit the like, hit the subscribe. Drop me a donation like Hunter M, Agent R, and Tom M. Just click more in the video description. Go to my Patreon and subscribe patreon.com slash the Helios blog and buy my books at bit.ly slash Helios books. Shitting is done. Let's continue. And neuroticism, which was very interesting because we found very few phenomena in our studies 
that where you couldn't eradicate the sex difference by controlling for personality. That's weird. Yeah, so agreeableness, being female, but the biggest predictor was low verbal IQ. And so you imagine that... So you're saying woke people are stupid. No, I'm saying that people who are less verbally sophisticated are more likely to gravitate towards all-encompassing simple theories. Indeed. Exactly. So sheep. Or the average uneducated person. And by the way, guys, I don't know if you know, but our, the schooling system in the West is dying or dropping. Not surprisingly, because people are becoming more stupid. And I believe it's because the, the whole point is to create two groups of people, a ruling class and peasants, right? And I mean, just look at the United States. If you need proof, teachers get paid nothing, right? They get paid like uh, a, a little bit more than minimum wage. So nobody's smart becomes a teacher. So then the average student gets taught by idiots and becomes stupid. And then they become more susceptible to ideologies like this, destructive ideologies. What a surprise that this is a thing. Because of course they are. So like, kind of like, Woke people, maybe, well, which is bright. Well, I think you might be able to say the same thing about people who hold a very low-resolution, schematically conservative viewpoint, you know, where they don't deviate from tradition at all. Yeah. And where they're, they're not particularly sophisticated in defending their beliefs. That's not associated with openness? That's mostly um, low? We didn't. We, that's a complicated question because openness is associated with verbal IQ. So yeah. if you have a low verbal IQ, you're likely to be lower in openness. But it's it was complicated because generally speaking, openness predicts liberal viewpoint. But yeah. political correctness is is not exactly it's not exactly merely an extension of liberal belief. But the correlation between politically correct belief and verbal IQ was negative 0.45, which is a walloping correlation. It's it was one of the biggest correlations we ever saw in any study. It's it's higher than the correlation between IQ and grades. So basically, smart people aren't woke. Interesting. So then, if a clearly smart person is showing woke beliefs, then they're doing it for some gain. That can be inferred from this. Which is really something, because those measures are kind of That's the same crazy. thing. That's yeah, was it, yeah. So wow. So, and you know there is evidence in the university setting too that the most politically correct disciplines are those who are simultaneously most dominated by females and that have the least bright students. Indeed, you know, like uh, liberal arts type degrees as opposed to hard sciences. What a surprise that people in the hard sciences are less likely to be woke and more likely to actually care about the facts. Hmm. Are those also the ones that don't actually lead to jobs? They just well, lead they to, lead to, to jobs debt. now. Oh yeah, they've created this entire ecosystem yes. so that your humanities degree matters. Yeah. Well, your 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 women's studies degree, let's say, or yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, lumping all the humanities together. Yeah. There. No, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. But, um, and so you know, this is part of a broader discussion. That, by the way, did you notice that? 
Michaela is clearly eclipsed by her father in terms of IQ as well. Because she makes a lot of sweeping generalizations. It's almost like Michaela's IQ is like, I'm smart because my dad is smart. Can't you see that? It's kind of the implication here. She's not really proving it in this interview that she's that smart. It's more like her dad is smart and she's trying to sound smart while making lots of errors, which her dad is kind of annoy, annoyingly swatting, you know, or sorry, annoyedly swatting. We can't have in our culture, which is what's the evidence that the feminine ethos scales to regulate families or broader communities? Because we've introduced women into the broad political discussion. And we've introduced women to every level of social organization. And by the way, we know that the male ethos does work to regulate society and families. We know that it works because it has literally worked for thousands of years of human history. Thousands of years it has worked. In every single culture before 2023, every culture, and this is without fail, all cultures that have had huge empires and kingdoms all were dominated by the male ethos. And that is actually not an exaggeration. Um, a lot of people will cite the aboriginals of uh, North America as exceptions to this, saying that they were matriarchies. But actually, that those societies were destroyed by male ethos-dominated cultures should show you which one is the successful, naturally selected ethos that works to lead societies. I'm not saying there aren't bad actions that those societies have done, but what I'm saying is it does create more stable, more successful societies. And again, if you look into the history of any such society, there is always a mess of things going on, but that isn't because the male ethos doesn't work, it's because life is complicated, and the more people you put into it, the more complications arise, and it's impossible for everyone to be happy. But it is possible to create relatively stable, successful societies with the male ethos. It's not so clear that the female ethos works equally well, based on what we're seeing in 2022 and beyond 2023 and so on. But we have no evidence that women can produce those sorts of organizations. Indeed. Now, maybe they can, and maybe it's also a great positive that they are. And I think there's lots of evidence for that. I mean, so, for example, it's clearly the case that countries where women are more educated and when, where women are granted more rights seem to do far better economically. Now, whether that's because the women are free, which might be the reason, or because the cultures that tend to be more open to female participation are also more open to innovative ideas of all sorts, right? Because it's very difficult to distinguish between. Right, and, and there's more. It might be that not only are they open to that, but they're also open to other people from other cultures coming in and contributing, right? So lots of societies, historically, what has happened is if they have been too stark too specific about what they needed. And what, what I mean is, we need our people to be 
exactly this religion, exactly this race, exactly whatever, and they kick out anybody that isn't that, they experience significant brain drain. So what I'm saying is societies that are more open to bringing in people from everywhere are more likely to have all those people working together and creating something a little bit better. So keep that in mind as well, guys. Between those two, we don't know. But we also know that if you educate women, their children are more motivated to pursue higher levels of education, which isn't doesn't seem to be the case. So if you try to predict how far a child will go in terms of their education, you can use mother IQ, father IQ, child IQ, and then you can use mother education and father education. And the IQ measures are relevant, and mother's education is relevant, but father's education isn't. Very interesting. So, and it isn't obvious why that is. Maybe women are pushier on behalf of their children, right? So we like, don't oh, know. Oh, well, I got an education. You need an education yeah, well, more it than may the be, dad. It, it may be that women who are educated are better at acting out the implicit valuation of education in a, like at very early ages. Maybe they read more to their children. We don't know. Hmm. But, but, so, but what I'm saying is that I'm not making a blanket case that the introduction of women into more sophisticated forms of social, no, larger scale forms of social organization was like a non-starter. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it isn't because half the brain power in the world is in the hands of women. We don't want to just leave that lying on the table. That would be a mistake for everyone. But we also don't, we have no evidence whatsoever that the maternal ethos scales. And I think, I don't think it does. I think that large scale organizations have yeah. to run on on conscientiousness, yeah, yeah. not on agreeableness. Like, and there's evidence for that too. So, if you might- look- so conscientiousness means on hard work and basically, um, what's the other word? Hard work and earning the part. So, you can't select them based on their race, on their gender, but you select them based on their ability. It's a meritocracy. That's conscientiousness. Agreeableness is, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We want everyone to be happy. Uh, your feelings matter, right? And how you're accepted matters. These are two different things. One thing is male-oriented and one thing is female-oriented. Meritocracy works very, very well in society. This agreeableness thing where everyone needs to hold hands and sing kumbaya doesn't seem to work so well. It actually be negatively correlated with agreeableness. Well, right? we've looked at what predicts success in complex, functional organizations. And the two biggest predictors are IQ, because... IQ is general cognitive ability, and that's just how fast and well you can solve any problem that requires abstraction. And solving it faster is obviously better if it's an important problem because it's more efficient. The other predictor is conscientiousness, not agreeableness. In Mm. fact, in the managerial domain, there's some evidence that agreeableness is negatively correlated with success. Wait, wait, wait. So what he's saying is two things matter for the success of an organization. How smart you are and how hard you work, basically. I mean, this is intuitively obvious, right? And what's really funny is agreeableness could be negative, 
Because if you're too agreeable, you can't say no. If you can't have boundaries, then the people working under you will just do whatever they want and it ruins efficiency. Absolutely. And I think that's because agreeable managers get taken advantage of. That's right. They can't discipline their employees right. properly and they get resentful. Yeah, they but, feel bad, right? Like what happens yeah, if you have to they fire somebody who is having a really hard time, right? And then it's like, oh, I'll let them stay in the company yeah. and then well, let your company Well, worse than that, fail. even I think they're prone... And I think this is the fundamental problem with agreeableness in, in, in some regard as an ethos is you're completely susceptible to manipulation by narcissists and psychopaths. And we know this technically, we know this biologically. So imagine that you set up a game, a simulation where everyone is cooperating. You could cheat, but everyone cooperates. Well, you can set up a pretty stable game that's composed of nothing but cooperators. But if you introduce one cheater, one shark, the cheater takes everything. And yeah. so the, and this is this is a chronic problem for societies. It's like right. as soon as you set up cooperation as the norm, the desirable norm, the iterable norm, the sustainable norm, the productive norm, that means those who mimic cooperation, so narcissists, Machiavellians, psychopaths who pretend to be cooperative and competent can steal. And then you're faced with the problem of, okay, what do you do with the free riders and the crooks? And the answer is, well, you change society so that they're not victimized. It's like, you are naive beyond <laughs> belief. You know, it's like, the, I think it was the mayor of Seattle when Antifa established its, you know, zone of, of utopia downtown. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, it'll be just like the summer of love which, by the way, ended very badly. And that was fine till the lights went off at night and the criminals came to play. And you think, well, they're just victims of an oppressive social organization. It's like, that'll be a real good thing to tell them when they break into your house. Exactly. In old school society, Hammurabi's law code, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, an arm for an arm. That was the old system. The oldest law code. And that works to deter psychopaths. It works very well. Because there are gigantic punishments for being a cheater. And uh, if we're looking at the history of someone like, let's say, Alexander the Great, same sort of thing, right? He rewarded people that did their jobs. And he literally executed people for not doing their job well. So, for example, when he went to, what was it, Persepolis, where the tomb of Cyrus the Great was? I believe it was Persepolis. You, you guys can correct me in the comments if I'm wrong. He went to Persepolis and saw the tomb of Cyrus the Great, and it had been neglected. And he felt so disgusted that the governor of the province had failed to keep up the tomb of one of their greatest heroes. He executed that guy. But he didn't just execute... You know, satraps, which were the rulers of, of different provinces in, in Persia at the time. He didn't just execute all of them. He rewarded the ones that did a good job and punished severely the ones that didn't do their duty. You see? The cheaters, as Jordan is saying. That's a society that runs on conscientiousness, right? On hard work. And if you know the history of Alexander the Great, you know that he was incredibly hardworking, as hardworking as any soldier, if not more. 
Okay. Let's continue. <laughs> and so that sort of naivety, which is a, an outgrowth of a kind of immature agreeableness, is seriously not helpful when it comes to solving complex social problems. Well, and one of, of I suppose, is the regulation of the relationship between men and women. Because women actually don't like agreeable men that much. No, they don't. Now, it's tough for women, eh? Because if you have a disagreeable man, he's blunt, he's not very compassionate, he's not very polite, he's competitive. And so, and that can degenerate into a kind of selfish meanness. And so the best personality predictor of criminal behavior is low agreeableness. Indeed. So, and, then, and low consciousness. Well, if you add those two together, you get something approximating psychopathy. So that's someone, he doesn't care about you at all. Plus, he follows zero rules. So like, stay away from that guy. And it isn't just that he's misunderstood. Right. He's a guy to mm -hmm. stay away from. Exactly. And you could add extroversion to that, then you'd get a narcissistic psychopath. And mm -hmm. then maybe you could add emotional stability to that, and then you'd get a fearless, narcissistic, self-centered psychopath and then then but you have that would be like uh an escobar right that's a movie psychopath right? yeah but if so, you up the conscientiousness then you get a ceo well right? or a well, surgeon. well yeah well that's that's the okay so what a woman needs is someone who's disagreeable enough to keep the psychopaths away and the criminals but agreeable enough to share and be reasonable and that's an unbelievable that's a knife edge right or it's an extremely rare man. That's, again, every romance novel, right, is the girl taking one of these guys and changing him so that he's exactly what she needs. There's a reason for that because it gets at a deep instinctual need that women have, which is exactly what Jordan is describing. Do they have to be agreeable enough, though, or could they just be conscientious? Well, is it like, okay, this is fair. Like, I can't I think starve that's a matter you of degree. or our relationship no, no, will devolve. No, no, no you want something. No, I've seen disagreeable, conscientious men try to have relationships with agreeable women. Yeah. And it's very difficult for them to bridge the gap. Because yeah, okay. the, the guy is so masculine and the woman is so feminine that they don't really exist in the same world. And so it, it's, you want the... You know, you don't, you want a man who, it's tough. It also depends to some degree on the dangerousness of the environment, right? So the more dangerous the environment, yeah. maybe the more disagreeable a man you need. So Right. In a world that was extremely unsafe, where you could be killed by a predator at any moment, disagreeable men are the ones that are selected. And uh, even a psychopath, right? Because a psychopath will kill such a predator with no fear, right? And keep you safe. And this is why women find disagreeable men so attractive. Because for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, we didn't have society. And even when we did have society at the beginning, it was quite unsafe, the world, I mean, and quite unpredictable. And those men have been selected for and selected for and selected for, for years and years and years, right? And for so many years, we had literally war every single year or every five years so you needed a fighting man and so on 
So it's it's no surprise to anyone that the loser men that smile at everyone in a week are not attractive. Because they, they're not those kinds of men that women have been selecting for, for thousands of years. So it's a really thin needle for women to thread. And that's basically the beauty, beauty and the beast mythology, right? right. Because the woman, beauty in, in that story, wants a beast. Well, why? To keep the real beasts at bay. And who Gaston. are the real beasts? Gaston. Well, and what is he? He's a narcissist, right? right. He's a narcissistic. He borders dangerous. on psychopathy. Yeah. Very yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Very dangerous. Arrogant, egotistical, self-centered. And he's a, he's a parody of masculinity in some sense. And so mm -hmm. beauty wants the beast because he's a beast and he can keep Gaston at bay. But he's tameable. And her job... And, and this is, I, I think, part of the central female myth of adaptation, like the hero myth is for men. The hero myth is also relevant for women. But it's, it's, a, it's an admixture for women because they have the beauty and the beast thing that has to be done, which I think is primary. But the hero myth, which is go confront that which frightens you and stands in your way and thereby prevail. That's sort of like Mary with her foot on the serpent, right? That's That's very much like... St. George and the Dragon. So there's that element of predator defense that's definitely part of women's makeup and the desire to explore and intellectually and and the desire and to and the, the, the ethos of courage and voluntary exposure. That's all relevant. That's partly why Christ in Christianity is regarded as a universal savior. He's an archetypal hero. So he's sort of like St. George and the Dragon magnified up into a whole another dimension of well, why is Christ the ultimate hero? Because he sacrificed himself utterly for others. That's the point. An utterly self-sacrificing and positive being. Holding back the evils, right? That's of, of the world. That's the idea. Significance. But he's regarded as a figure that's redemptive, both for men and women. But then you have the right. figure of Mary. It's like, well, is Christ redemptive or is Mary? And the answer for women is, well, for the answer for both sexes is both. But Indeed. Christ is regarded still as primary for both sexes, which is quite interesting. Okay. We're going to end the video there. Hit the like, hit the subscribe, drop me a donation like Hunter M, Adrian and Tom M, link is in the description. Buy my books at bit.ly slash heliosbooks. Go to my Patreon and subscribe, patreon.com slash theheliosblog. Thank you so much for listening, guys, especially if you listen to the end. I really do appreciate it. Take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next time.